Turn, if you would, please, to the 13th chapter of, of Luke. As we continue... <clears throat> want to keep this behind me. We saw this last week, but we didn't really get through it last week. And uh, what I want to emphasize yet again, and I will never stop emphasizing this, is this notion of the connectivity of, of these, these gospel writers. It's true of every one of the 66 books, but uh, here in Luke, uh, we've got... Uh, We've got a gospel writer who's putting these, these episodes and statements and events together in a way that, that is, at least here in the central portion of the book, uh, drawing us deeper and deeper into what I would, would call the seriousness of what it means to be a Christian. And in, in this 13th chapter, uh, last week we were looking at this episode uh, from verses 10 to 21 about uh, in verse 11 it's, it says a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years that is a long long time to have a disabling spirit whatever that means it doesn't really matter what that means uh, but here she is in the synagogue and Jesus comes in to to preach and teach and uh, in verse 12 he says woman you are freed from your disability. Now we've seen episodes in this gospel where Jesus has, has been healing people, including uh, raising them in, in frankly more serious condition than this woman is, but it doesn't change the fact that this woman is an illustration, and this is what I really want us to remember from last week, an illustration that kingdom living lived well, lived biblically, is going to be sober, steady, and sure. That's what's important. Uh, the Christian life uh, it is not, there will certainly be mountaintop experiences, there will be uh, valleys here and there, <clears throat> but uh, the essence of this episode in verses 10 to 21 is, is slow, steady, sure, this, this kind of movement that I think this woman uh, illustrates no one around her seems uh, I, I just get the feeling from this passage that this woman is a regular at church we might be tempted to say uh, she is a daughter of Abraham in verse 16 and more importantly in verse 16 this disabling spirit uh, was a binding from Satan and again, we connected that with the book of Job, where we see that God will, upon occasion, allow Satan certain liberalities uh, with us, and that can go in any number of, of directions. Now, start tying this in with what we saw from those concentric rings of alienation from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, especially Genesis 3, uh, where every person on, on planet Earth is living in this, this uh, alienated state from God, from himself or herself, from those around him or her, and as well as in a universe that is alienated. Our uh, son and his family live uh, very close to Nashville, Tennessee, a week ago where the tornadoes came through. About a mile from his house were, uh, were some fatalities, and he was, it was interesting, uh, 
the sobering words he was using to describe this event because it was so close and headed straight for them that it, they started getting the phone calls from whatever government agency that's saying it's coming to your nose, hunker down. And that, uh, that's, that really seemed to have an impact. Uh, what's also interesting from last week is in verse 17, his adversaries, these are the, the big mahafs, these are the big guns in the synagogue, these are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, uh, the one who are acclaimed by their culture as being uh, this, that, or the other, they were put to shame, it says in verse 17, but all the people are rejoicing. Now this sober, steady, sure uh, illustration that, uh, that has been given concretely through this individual is illustrated then, I'm, I have, we had time to barely touch on this, two little two-verse parables uh, that have been controversial for millennia. Uh, verses 18 and 19 talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus immediately says, uh, here's what you need to learn from this episode, folks. And he says, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that when planted became a tree and birds made nests in its branches. Uh, there, I, I'm, I'm, I will desperately avoid, I hope and pray, uh, falling into any kind of millennial uh, eschatological, uh, post-mill, pre-mill. Uh, <laughs> if I start going there, throw your hymnals at me and I will remember <laughs> what I have said. But, uh, but there are some folks who read these two little verses and they say, okay, uh, the kingdom of God is going to come so vast that it's going to take over the world. That is not a biblical position. When you go through scripture, you have always, you're running into words like remnant. Uh, we're going to run into another one in a, in a few minutes here. I think what these two verses are saying, a better way to read them is that the kingdom of God will in fact grow, but it will have a sort of undercover, below the, uh, the headlight kind of growth. Uh, from an insignificant beginning, a mustard seed is considered, uh, as you know, the, one of the smaller, if not the smallest seed. Um, so this is going to be, from a human perspective, very unlikely that this kingdom of God, I mean, here is, here is a person who, who comes into this world as laid in a manger. And uh, you know the story of, of these folks uh, where Jesus is ministering, perhaps, in this very passage. They, they knew him as the son of Joseph and Mary. They, they, this guy, come on, he's a carpenter, son. We know who he is. Uh, very insignificant, but it becomes this vast movement that is going to go all the way through every culture and nation on the planet. It's not going to take them all over. It's not going to take them by storm, but it's going to take them the way God wants them taken. Uh, so God's children are going to find protection and rest within this scenario. Again, living a sober, uh, meaning in this uh, particular case, uh, meaning we're not going to, to go out and and every person on the planet become a Christian. I don't expect that to happen. I want that to happen. I will take the gospel to every person on the planet, regardless of their background or any other aspect of them. The gospel is meant to go universally, uh, but uh, the Bible does not seem to indicate that it's going to take every man, woman, and child on the planet. So I'm going to be sober about that. It's not going to upset me if I run into a crowd of people, preach, teach the gospel to them, 
and some of them throw things at me, or they're, they're not, they just don't get it, whatever. Uh, but I'm going to be steady about that. I'm not going to stop doing it, and I'm going to uh, be certain of where I'm coming from. Now, in, in verses 20, 20, 21, you get another two-verse parable here. Another thing Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like leaven, hidden in flour until it was all leaven. Now, you know how that works. And the particular uh, quantification of it here in this, uh, in this little passage, these two verses, indicate a vast increase, but it's hidden. Uh, this, this woman puts leaven in flour, uh, gets up the next morning, and, and lo and behold, there's enough to feed rough, almost 200 people from it. Again, an indication that outwardly as well as inwardly, there will be a perfect development of, of exactly what the God, God wants this kingdom to be, uh, regardless of what may appear to be an insignificant beginning. Now, that has enormous implication for all of us. If, if you, we've all got friends, perhaps family members, probably family members, uh, that we've been longing for, praying for, searching for, uh, speaking with, uh, only to see uh, frustration and and perhaps worse, and wondering when in the world, where in the world, why in the world, uh, where is God in all of this? Well, he's working is the answer, and he's working as leaven works, and he will do what he will do as we remain sober and steady and sure. Uh, Jesus is drawing lines in the sand all through the Gospels, but uh, often parabolically, you know, if we've already come into the parables in Luke, we'll, we'll, we're about we're on the edge of coming into quite a few of them. Uh, this parabolic language, Jesus himself says, I speak this way because I don't want everybody to get it. I don't intend for everybody to get it. I speak this way so that those I have as my children will get it. And you start getting into these dichotomies, these, these apparent uh, opposites that Jesus will bring into, uh, into the midst of these people. Dualisms, oxymorons, antinomies, as J.I. Packer uh, likes to call them, uh, ironies, paradoxes, all these kinds of things, and we're smack in the middle of it, and we're about to hit another one. Uh, you get, for instance, you get these Pharisees who, ironically, as the religious leaders, they are the hypocrites. Uh, the people rejoice and have open hearts to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, for instance, will say, I come to bring division, not peace. Uh, when Jesus walks into the life of, of whomever, it does not necessarily lead to uh, everybody falling down and getting in line and in step. Just the opposite, in fact. Jesus is looking for fruitfulness, not barrenness. He's healing. He's not worried about Sabbath violations. He's giving out grace, not uh, works legalistic thinking. He's looking for repentance and uh, says, if you don't repent, you will perish. It's an either or in that case. Small mustard seeds, worldwide kingdom, small amount of leaven, a silent but a vast influence comes from it. And that leads us to today's passage, which begins in, in verse 23. Someone is going to hear all of that and they're going to get it. They're going to ask a very appropriate question. And it's this one, Lord, verse 23 of Luke 13, Lord, will those who are saved be few? 
In other words, uh, this individual is, is starting to, to think, hmm, uh, I, want, I want to be leavened uh, by the interaction with Jesus and the kingdom. Uh, but will I be? Now, Jesus in verse 22 of uh, 14 says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. As we see, the middle point of, uh, of Luke is, is the journey that Jesus is taking from the northern part of Galilee uh, down toward Jerusalem and across. And that is when someone says to him in verse 13, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus is going to reply uh, to this. But before that, we need to understand the assumptions of the Jewish folks that were hearing Jesus, and frankly, many uh, of uh, Jewish individuals you'll run into today, their assumption was they were automatically saved because they were Jews. They, they were God's people. They, God had created uh, the Jews, and from Abraham's day forward, uh, they were God's children, and therefore the case closed. They didn't have anything uh, to do with Jesus, and Jesus is going out of his way to tell them that's not uh, quite true. Gentiles, on the other hand, we were the goyim, we were the dogs. Uh, scripture's not kind to Gentiles until Jesus comes and opens the floodgates, first to a few Greeks and then sending out the apostles and disciples who are going to be the foundation stone of the church of Jesus Christ throughout every uh, country and culture on the planet. Uh, what do Gentiles ask for? Gentiles love to think of universalism. Everybody's saved. And we know how, uh, how normal interaction is among unbelievers. Uh, certainly you see it in movies and things that are, are little snapshots into our culture uh, where regardless of, of the person, uh, whenever they die, they, people will say these, give you these tangential phrases about he's, he's, he's up there, he, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's with the big guy. There are any number of, of ways it's his phrase uh, with absolutely no, no reason to be saying what they're saying. Uh, we are in a culture today that loves relativism. Uh, we don't want truth. We, don't, we're, we would be as threatened by truth as these Pharisees and Sadducees are uh, because truth is, is a threat to us if we want to live life in our own way and following our own dictates. Uh, so relativism is big today. That's why pluralism is big today. Uh, theologians talk about post-modernity. I like the way Rick talks about pre-Christian culture. Uh, we're not so much in a post-modern as we are pre-Christian. The United States today has gone back uh, very, very far into the past and in denial of any kind of truth. Thomas Jefferson, if you probably most of us have been to Monticello and, and uh, is it Monticello or Cello? I, Cello. Cello. I gotta remember that. <laughs> okay. Um, if we go to Monticello, one of the things you can buy in the gift shop is Thomas Jefferson's New Testament. Uh, what you will find odd about his New Testament is that he took out the name Jesus everywhere that it appeared in it, took out all the miraculous, denied a resurrection, and denied that there could be anything uh, miraculous because Jefferson was such a uh, scientifically oriented fact base. If I can't see it and I can't prove it, then it obviously does not exist and cannot exist. Uh, that's typical thinking of so many today. I, I remember 
in one of my ill-fated uh, jobs working at a university only lasted three months. And that was two months and 30 days and a half, too long. <laughs> uh, but I, I was talking with a religious professor of religion and um, we got to talking and, and he said, well, you don't believe the Bible, do you? I said, well, yeah, don't you? And he said, well, of course not. He, he said, religion's like a big mountain. He said, just think of it as a big mountain and there are many, many paths to the top. There's a Buddhist path, and there's, there's a Hindu path, and there's an Islamic path, and there's a Christian path. Uh, very typical, uh, these, i tell you what, Joe just drives me crazy, these coexist bumper stickers, <laughs> you see. I'm trying not to, uh, to put a cattle, what do you think I call this thing, on an old train? Cattle catcher, cattle something, in front of my car. <laughs> that's, that's where my sinful nature takes over, but... Um, you get these things, John Lennon this time of year, imagine his song, imagine, you know, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, uh, no hell below us, uh, blah, 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 above us only sky, all those, uh, if you listen to the lyrics of Lennon's uh, song, you hear the same kind of attitude that Jesus is running into here, it's been uh, the attitude since the garden and it will always be until he returns. Um, but this anonymous person in verse 23 has asked a question because he or she is aware that there is danger in the words that Jesus has spoken. Uh, there is an ultimate human predicament. There is something called sin. I don't know if the person has been able to articulate that notion, but certainly aware of some kind of eternal vulnerability. It's fascinating to me that when we started sending astronauts into space far enough away, especially the moon missions, uh, they, they use the word fragile. <clears throat> Almost all of them would look back and they would see this, this earth apparently appearing to be suspended in space with this very thin little atmosphere that alone was keeping everybody alive on it. And they often described it as a fragile look. And indeed it is, and I think that's part of what's being said here. So what I'm going to look at today um, quickly is uh, verses 22 to 30. And I'm going to call this confined space rescue. <clears throat> okay. Let me explain what I mean. Our son in, now lives in Raleigh. Is a, he's been a firefighter for basically since he was that tall and he would run to the door every time the fire trucks came. But today he is a special ops firefighter who goes around the country teaching rescue uh, operations. It's, it's a very, very sophisticated thing. Uh, when he first became a firefighter, I thought, I said, Timothy, what's, what's the big deal? Fire, water, put B on A, case closed. He said, I'm sorry, Daddy, it doesn't quite work that way. And indeed it doesn't because you run into various environments such as underwater uh, rescues, such as uh, confined space rescue. For instance, 9-11 is a classic uh, illustration of that. When you have a building that has collapsed in the midst of a fire, you have the threat uh, you're always dealing with confined space rescues. <clears throat> and uh, this is what this person has asked that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, in firefighting lingo, a confined space rescue 
requires three issues. It has to be a large enough space to enter and work in. The firefighter is in at what we don't, what can't come, come across in the movies and the TV shows about firefighting is that in the middle of a, of a fire, you can't see your finger in front of your face. It's totally black. The heat is so high. I once asked him, how do you know where the fire starts? And, and he takes me in a building that had burned out these demarcations up the wall of various heats. And we were about seven feet above, and he said it's 800 degrees Fahrenheit by the time you get. So the firemen are never standing in a building. They're on their hands and knees, crawling in the dark, in a building they have never been in, counting doorways. They get to a doorway. They don't know if that's a door to a bathroom, a door to a basement, a door to a child's room where a child may be dying inside. They don't know what these doors are counting them in the hopes that they can retract their way out of these buildings and hoping that they don't collapse upon them. So a, a confined space has to be large enough for them to get in. It has to have limited means of entry and exit. And it has to be not designed for continuous occupancy. And as I, I read that, I thought, that's life. That's every Christian. Every Christian lives in a confined space rescue environment. <clears throat> It's large enough for us to enter. Uh, we work in it. It has limited means of entry. You're born into it and you're gonna to die to get out of it and that's all. Uh, it is not designed for continuous occupancy. This world is not what we are designed for. Uh, AKA uh, life on planet Earth. <clears throat> What's the solution? According to Luke, repent or perish. That's the way you solve the confined space rescue. Now, there's a further problem in the firefighting world with uh, this monitor, IDLH, inherently dangerous to life and health. And I thought, this is, this is a perfect illustration, which is why I'm calling uh, this passage we're about to hit, Confined Space Rescue. And it's certainly fraught with dangerous, uh, literally life and health issues, and they all come to this one word, sin. Again, we're going back to that, um, those concentric circles from the garden, all that alienation. When Adam and Eve sinned, God kicks them out of the garden, so they're no longer, they're now alienated from God. Adam can't figure Eve out, uh, and the universe is going to fight back. You, you can keep uh, growing plants, Adam, but now they're going to fight you. They're going to be rocks in the soil. You don't have to deal with it. So all of this is, is building on one another. And when we get into verse 24 of the passage here, Luke 13, 24, strive to enter it. Somebody has said, Lord, uh, are those who are saved going to be few? And Jesus' answer is strive to enter through the narrow door. Uh, again, I'm thinking of this firefighting analogy. Uh, there's a confined space rescue uh, effort that needs to go on. That's what evangelism is. We're, we're going out into this world trying to uh, kick some of the doors down and, and get to the people who don't know how to find them. But Jesus' answer, strive to enter the narrow door. Uh, so Jesus says, yes, there is a way. There is a rescue possible. It's, it's redemption uh, through Jesus Christ. But the rescue effort, the escape route, the deliverance of it is through a narrow door. Now in the second part of verse 24, he says this, 
For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Uh, that's, that is a, that, that's a very, very sobering uh, conclusion to Jesus' response to this individual. Yes, there is rescue, but it's going to come through a narrow door, and some people are going to seek and not find. Um, one of the hints that comes through in this verse is in, in English, strive. The very first word of, of verse 24, strive to enter. Uh, the Greek of this translated strive uh, is, is, is a difficult tongue twister. It's agonisteste, uh, where we get agony from, uh, agonizing and so forth. Uh, so striving to enter, Jesus himself is saying there's going to be some agony involved here. Uh, not necessarily meaning that, that you know, great grief is going to come to you, but we, again, building on all of the context of scripture, uh, there will be agony from a number of sources because of all of that alienation. Uh, this agony is going to be a part of of the issue. It's not going to be easy, in other words. That's why I think uh, in Luke, what we have seen so many times so far is, is Jesus just cuts right to the chase and says, repent or perish. Uh, if you go to Matthew, by the way, this, this section is in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew has a bit of a different uh, take on it. In Matthew chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Matthew says, enter by the narrow gate. This is Jesus talking. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So again, now we're back to the lady before all of this, the, the steady, slow, sober approach uh, to, uh, to being a Christian, stridently motivated by this, uh, by this awareness of what this world is really like uh, that we live in. And by, way, <clears throat> by the way, Luke's um, repent or perish aspect is repeated often in the book of Acts. Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, you remember right off the bat, uh, Peter's sermon in, in Pentecost. The people finally are moved in their hearts by the Holy Spirit that has come down at Pentecost. And they're saying, what must we do to be saved? And Peter's first word is repent. Repent, be baptized. Uh, it goes all the way through the book of Acts in, in very, very significant places. Uh, the 17th chapter of Acts, where Paul is at the Areopagus. He's gone to Athens. Uh, the, the crown jewel of the universe, the, the philosophers and all of the brilliant thinkers, and he sees nothing but um, false idols that, that are littering the ground. And Paul's message to them, again, what must we do? Repent uh, and come to this, uh, this Jesus who has been resurrected. And all through, again, the book of Acts, anywhere they're going, that's, that's where, where Luke is going to come to. When Paul is concluding the book and he's trying to defend himself before King Agrippa. Uh, King Agrippa is, is apparently initially taken uh, well by Paul's words. And he says, goodness, I, I, that's 
interesting, the things you're saying, Paul. And Paul then tells him, yes, but if you don't repent, it doesn't matter. So repentance, we're getting back now to that notion of that order of salvation, that effectual calling, uh, the changing of the heart and regeneration, and then that faith slash repentance that are never separated. Uh, we keep coming back to it over and over again. What is Jesus saying here about this narrow door? It will require my faith, the cat, the K-A-T, the knowledge, the assent, and then the trust, the conviction, the dedication, the movement of my heart toward Jesus. And then the repentance, the CCC. I've got to become aware of my sinfulness so that I confess it. I've got to have contrition for it. I know it to be a sin against a holy God and it, it breaks me in half to think of what I have done given what God has done for me. But then the third C, just like the T of the cat, the third C is change. Repentance requires me to start moving in a better direction than I am in. Now, Jesus is going to illustrate this in 25, six and seven. So back to Luke 13, uh, verse 25 says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. 27, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now that I do not know you uh, is in my humble opinion, one of the worst phrases uh, that anyone will ever hear. As you know, elsewhere in the gospels, you get this, this awful, awful potential to come at, uh, at our desks in front of a holy God and, and earnestly pray that he will never say, I don't know you. Uh, you have no part in all of this. What Jesus is saying there in verses 25, six and seven is that this offer of rescue, this redemption, this narrow door has a limited time. Uh, we don't know what it is. We've run in that. Also, you remember the, the man who was wealthy and he had everything going for him and it's, it came across some kind of, of great uh, business transaction and uh, was started scurrying around building larger barns and more barns to store all of his vast wealth in. And Jesus says, yes, but tonight your soul is going to be demanded of you. There is a time limit that we do not know. We don't know when we're going to die, if death is what ultimately separates us from this life, uh, as opposed to Jesus coming again. That too can happen at any point in time. Uh, but what Jesus is saying again is there is a line in the sand. There are no points for second place in the gospel. So someone uh, who hears uh, Jesus preach is not going to enter. Others who never had an opportunity to hear him preach will enter. So what's going on here? Well, in verses 28, 29, and 30, he completes this little pericope here. In Luke 13, he says, in that place there will be weeping. This, that is the place uh, where he's saying, I don't know you. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. 
Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now that's the tie-in back to those two little two-verse parables. There will be surprise at the finish line. The person we thought was slow and incapable of coordinated walking, much less running, is going to, in fact, finish the race ahead of many of the athletes. Now, what's the conclusion? Uh, Kent Hughes puts all of this passage, I think, into two wonderfully marvelous statements, insightful statements. Kent Hughes says this, this, this passage from uh, this uh, mustard seed and, and leaven, and much more importantly, the narrow door passage, the confined space rescue passage from verse 22 to 30. Hughes said it means two things. Number one, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Uh, it's not just knowing a lot about Jesus. It's not going to seminary. It's not uh, being an officer in a church. It's not attending church day in and day out. Although all of those things uh, I would encourage folks to, to seek uh, if God is calling them in that direction. But nonetheless, the point of it all is having a relationship with Jesus. I, I just um, was swapping texts with a friend of mine who he and I have struggled to get on the same, we have never been on the same page. I'll just be brutally honest. Uh, never, ever. And he, he goes off to literally the other side of the world and he does, he does this, uh, what he calls missionary work. And me being born and raised Presbyterian, of course, I'm stuffy and frozen and, you know, I want to put up a bureaucratic shield and say, well, you haven't uh, gone through, uh, you know, points 34 to 38. You maybe got one to 33 and maybe, I don't know, about 68 or 114, but I'm not sure you really are doing this the right way. Meanwhile, he's out spreading the gospel. Um, there's a lesson in all of that, but he, he just, uh, this past week, in fact, sent me the story of a man who, who spent his entire life in China uh, as a missionary. He wasn't sent by any church. He was an American and he, he simply did it, but he spent 65 years in China. He has died now. Uh, but this man's uh, sort of memoir, he starts it this way. And I was reading from my friend who sent me this. And, and the man from China says, here's what you do. Don't let anything come between every single day, getting into God's word and digging a deeper and deeper, more fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ so that you know him and he knows you. Now, he was not trying to exegete Luke 13. Uh, it was just a man of singular dedication, obedience that no one in the planet other than some very, very grateful folks in China and some of the churches that he helped plant there uh, that are, of course, under persecution. They know this man, but the important thing is God knows this man. This man was one of the little mustard seeds, if I can mix metaphors, the little mustard seed leavening the loaf of God's kingdom throughout the world that no one knows but the one person who must know, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Uh, so Kent Hughes' first, first item is, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Not meaning do you know all the answers to the theological exam, 
but do you have a relationship with him? Here's his second one. Has the relationship with Christ that you claim to have turned you away from evil? What's he doing there? He's defining repentance. He's, he's going through those three C's. Uh, the fact that you now know Jesus, has it made you now capable of seeing your own sinfulness, of being broken by your sinfulness, and of changing your living pattern because of it? He's not saying you've got to be perfect. We're all going to die sinners. Uh, but again, as we saw with the lady in that um, steady, sober, sure uh, scenario, the slope of the line needs to be positive. There are going to be peaks, there are going to be valleys, but the trajectory needs to be one that is above the line, it's positive. Uh, that's what Hughes is saying. Has this relationship that you claim to have turned you away from evil? The door's narrowness demanded humility, moral determination, agonizing steadfastness, all of these things. I want to conclude a very famous passage from John, the, the so-called uh, prayer of John toward the end, chapter 17 of John. Listen to how this, this begins. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now this is called the high priestly prayer because Jesus is interceding for his children uh, as uh, we are standing here today. But the mustard seed and the leaven, the narrowness of the kingdom entrance has created a kingdom. And this is the glorious news. Even though the entry point is narrow, the kingdom is broader and wider than anyone will ever imagine. It won't necessarily be seen. In fact, by the rest of the world, unbelief will not see it. Uh, but the point being, there is nothing but hope for you and for me. The door narrowed, maybe there's some striving, maybe there's some agonizing, certainly there will be. It will require uh, faith and repentance and ongoing over and over and over episodes as our sinfulness continues, but hopefully gets degraded over time. But the point is that the narrow way is wide open to everybody. Now Hughes has this amazing illustration. Most of you know Alistair Begg, or you've heard of Alistair Begg. Uh, He's, he's a British, is he British, Irish, or Scottish? I don't Scottish. Know. Scottish. Uh, one of the best communicator, preacher, teachers uh, that, that we are blessed with on this planet. Well, Hughes was at Harvard University with Alistair Begg for a convocation. He doesn't say when this happened, but they were both there. It was a convocation to honor the presence of ministers in the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, if you remember the Puritans uh, at Plymouth Rock, uh, 1620, it was actually more of the Puritans that came to Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, started Harvard University in 1636. So they hadn't even been on the planet in, in this hemisphere, but uh, 10 years or so. Before they start this university called Harvard College at that point, seminary, uh, 
but it's, it's, it's got gravitas. The word Harvard just reeks of gravitas. So here are Hughes and Begg, and they've got to speak at Harvard University at this convocation. And Alistair Begg gets up early one morning to put the finishing touches on the words he's saying because he's, he's sensing this gravitas and he's sensing the mustard seed and he's sensing that who am I to sit under the weight of Harvard? Truth. By the way, Harvard's original motto is Veritas Pro Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ in the church, but they've lopped off the rest of it. Uh, so, so who is little Alistair Begg to speak to the, just, just, you can just feel him feeling the doors narrow and, and the confined space becoming increasingly dangerous and difficult. So Begg is sitting there, he goes, he finds some little restaurant off of Harvard Yard in Cambridge and he's, he's struggling, he's really struggling. Two things happened to Alistair Begg and Kent Hughes, Begg, they, they talk about this. He is, Begg is inside a restaurant when a sparrow lands on his table inside the restaurant. Now you can imagine what he's struggling with, the might of the world and the force of, of godless existence. When God sends this little sparrow and says, remember Alistair, I know where the sparrow's going. So if I know where the sparrow's going, don't you think I can handle Harvard? The second thing that happens, he looks at the table next to him and there's a, an oriental uh, student, it appears, chronologically, and she's reading a Bible. So he goes over to her and he says, pardon me, I couldn't help but notice you, is that a Bible you're reading? She says, oh yes, I have found the narrow way. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Uh, so the point of all of it, again, use the two little parables because that is what you and I are involved in. We don't have to, we don't have to have grand, spectacular this, that, or the others. Sometimes they're appropriate, especially this time of year, perhaps. Uh, but uh, the point is God is moving and he's, not only is he sovereign, not only totally providential, totally omniscient, totally all of those things, uh, but we don't need to worry. We're in the confined space. God is not. God is moving in and out of it, and he's going to move us to the point of, of, uh, of faith and repentance if we come to Jesus. So the call goes out again, just as it went out uh, in the synagogue that began the 10th verse of chapter 13, to one and to all, come to Jesus. Put your faith in him, have a repentant, a penitent faith that is seeking to live better, but your eyes focused on Jesus and never moving and developing a deeper and deeper relationship and know that while the door is narrow, the kingdom is wide open for anyone this day or whenever who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that uh, this time of year in particular, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. We celebrate that birth because we know that birth is going to go to a cross. As we read here in Luke, this journey to Jerusalem is going to go to a, a hill there, Golgotha, and uh, that cross is going to, uh, to cement uh, the possibility of repentance and forgiveness through Christ because that cross, while it will take Jesus's life, is not going to 
take it permanently. There will be three days later an empty tomb and the rest is glorious salvation history. Father, make us your children. If we are not already, if we are, deepen our relationship with you on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis so we know, uh, Father, that we have the privilege of going out like little mustard seeds and laying the words of truth of the gospel and your Holy Spirit will do all the rest. Father, what a privilege you give us uh, to work in your kingdom, this kingdom that will have no end. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.